Hey everybody, just a very small note before we begin this episode. Our guest Jeff has shared with us a few slides that will help you navigate through the episode. It is not mandatory at all, you can listen to the episode and still get everything, but if you want to go deeper and have a visual support, head to corporate-treasury-101.com, head to the article section and look for the one with Jeff to download the slides for free. The link is of course in the description to make it easier. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the second part of our full interview with Jeff Gogitz, where we discuss strategic FX risk management. Jeff is a director at Kiriba, part of the advisory team, and focuses on FX risk management. Kiriba's treasury management system is, well, a well-known solution providing automated cash management, bank connectivity, liquidity management, payments, working capital, and many other features. In the episode of today, expect to learn when does an FX risk actually start and when does it stop? What is transaction risk in both anticipated and booked forms? How do senior management and stakeholders perceive FX risk management? Why should companies look carefully into their financial risks? And much, much more like always. We hope you will enjoy the episode. If that is the case, and when you're thinking about how you found our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our ask to you. The only way the podcast can grow and form more people to learn about treasury is thanks to you. So if you enjoy what you hear, learn something, please consider following the show, leaving us a review, or sharing this episode to help others discover it too. Also, if you're eager to learn more about how AI is revolutionizing our industry, be sure to join our bi-weekly newsletter, AI Treasury Insight. Check out the link in the description or head straight to corporate-treasury-101.com slash newsletter. With all that being said, please welcome Jeff Goggins. Do all of these risks apply to just public companies? Because we mentioned like it's all like anticipated and everything else is because you're reporting and you have forecasting. Mm -hmm. And which one of these are important for companies that aren't necessarily public with, with external shareholders? These risks theoretically, you know, pertain to all global companies, you know, depending on how they're set up. Some, some risks will present themselves, some won't, but theoretically public, private, these risks exist, but you bring up a really good question because you do see public companies care more about actually addressing the risk and especially, let's say, the booked risk that we talked about. So that's really, a lot of times we call that also an accounting risk because that's really that remeasurement process it's creating that FX gain or loss, and that FX gain or loss goes below the line, under operating margins, under EBITDA. And so a lot of private companies will say, well, we don't, we don't really necessarily want to put cash at risk because if you're hedging it and you have hedge losses, yes, you did the right thing economically, but then you have to pay the bank, let's say millions of dollars just to to kind of net settle out that that cash loss. So a lot of private companies will say, well, we don't want to hand we don't want to 
address that risk because it's below the line, it's below EBITDA. You know, our our private equity owners don't really care about it. We're not measured against it. So we're not going to kind of go through all the hurdles of hedging for that particular risk. Whereas a public company, you know, even though it's below the line, it does impact earnings per share. And a lot of them want to eliminate that volatility out of the earnings per share number. So you do have examples like that where private and public companies will respond differently or act differently to the risk, although they they both still have the risk. Awesome. Jeff, how about we we go back a bit? I mean, I think we're already a bit technical, but that's perfect because you break it down perfectly. Um, how does the, you mentioned earlier, this is where the risk starts and this is where it stops. Can we get back to that concept a bit and like break it down for each of the risks that we've identified? So maybe starting with the transaction risk, anticipated one. Where does that risk start? Where does it stop? And I feel there will be a link with when it starts for the booked one, but I let you break it down. Yeah, we, we touched a little bit on the, the tough thing with the anticipated side is where does it start? And I, I guess to bring this up a little high level again. So, you know, I, th- I think when a company is thinking about potentially addressing these risks and, and that could lead to end up hedging the risk, the first key thing is understanding the risk. Um, and, and the important thing that a company first needs to do is really two things is, is understand the landscape that they have in their organization. So, um, one of those is we talked about functional currency. So what's your legal entity situation? What are all the functional currencies? We want to take inventory of that. You want to understand the operational structure. Um, you know, if you have an in-house bank or, or some kind of purchasing entity in Switzerland, that's kind of your hub for all your inventory. And you have these other intercompany entities that uh, are taking all the inventory from that hub. You want to kind of understand all those operational elements of what's going on. What are the functional currencies? How are you handling the accounting of the actual transactions? Um, so understanding that, looking at your key transactions, map them out on a timeline, kind of understand this. And that's to your question, where does the risk actually start and stop? It it really Every company is going to be different. It's going to be different on how the operations are working, uh, how the accounting is being done, and, um, and and how folks are viewing that. So can, you, can the company change their pricing if the FX rates move? If they can just adjust their pricing, then they're basically naturally hedged. Uh, they don't need to worry about it. If they're locking in to a set price for their customers every quarter, then they might view their risk as starting as soon as that price gets set. As soon as, as soon as we lock into a price for a customer, that's when our risk is actually going to start. Uh, or some companies, you know, they might want to just jump ahead of all that and say, well, we want to influence the price we're going to be setting for our customers by smoothing out rates over a longer period of time. Um, so you want to understand the landscape and then you want to understand the viewpoint that folks in the organization have on risk. So the shareholders, the CFO, 
the senior management, C-suite, they might all be viewing risk as a U.S. dollar company as everything that's not U.S. dollars. Whereas if you have operations in Mexico, those uh, those operational folks, if, if their functional currency is Mexican peso, they're selling to Mexican peso cust or selling to customers in pesos. Those folks might be viewing their risk as anything that's not Mexican peso, even if they have U.S. dollar items that they're buying, they might view U.S. dollars as a risk. So in that case, you have a conflicting viewpoint. You have some folks doing everything that's not U.S. dollars as a risk, whereas at the same time, you have folks on the ground that are viewing U.S. dollars as a risk. So one thing you got to do is kind of get folks together, stakeholders together, and kind of figure out, well, what, how are we defining risk as a company and how are we going to measure this risk? And then you have to, at that point, you can now decide, okay, what are we going to do about it or what can we do about it? Okay. So feels that there might be a bit of change management and education around FX to be done with that Mexican subsidiary, but I guess that, that would be for another episode. You, you mentioned yeah. something interesting, like, are you able to pass on that risk into your prices directly and therefore you're basically immune to that, to that risk? So. I've seen in my short lifetime inflation indexed contracts, meaning, okay, at the beginning of each year, if it's like very long-term sales contract, if the inflation has gone up 10%, let's say, our prices will also go up 10%. Like this, you just pass on the inflation onto your clients. But I've never seen FX rate indexed contracts. Is it something that exists? I think they do exist and... um not that commonly. I think in certain countries you'll see it more. And the tricky thing with that is that you can have contracts that, let's say, are in U.S. dollars. So at the surface level, it looks like it's not a risk to you. But underneath the surface, if it's referencing, you know, a, a Brazilian rei price. Um, that is saying, and will readjust to you know the Brazilian central bank rate at the end of the month. I think you probably more commonly see that the other way, where it's really a Brazilian-looking contract that's underneath the surface priced in U.S. dollars. But you get these things where you do end up finding that you have hidden risks that that you can't really see at the surface. So, yeah. So, so that's another thing too. You, you can't always just look at the invoice currency. Sometimes in certain situations, you want to look beneath the surface and realize, well, I really have, I really have a euro risk that looks like a U.S. dollar invoice um, because the price is adjusting to the euro, you know, every month or every quarter. So, so the, yeah, that can happen. Uh, similar, I guess, to the inflation hedging, but um, but you don't see it that you know as much as you'd think in a material way. So, Jeff, you raised a good point there about stakeholders having different views on what is actually the risk, right? So you give that example about the Mexican subsidiary saying the US dollar is risk and, and vice versa. It goes back to a concept I think we covered a few times, which is, yes, the technicalities are important, but people, people management is perhaps even more important than that. Can you, can you take us through like that part of the FX risk world? Like, stakeholder management or stakeholder expectations or viewpoints? Yeah, sure. And uh, 
that's that's a really challenging part of of dealing with FX at a, a global company is getting everyone on board. And I, I think some that's one reason why some companies I think put hedging um, as far as kind of a transformational project with the company. Uh, sometimes they kind of push that aside a little bit because it's uh, it, it can be so challenging for them just to get everyone on board on the same page, setting that objective. But also, you know, Treasury needs to get the right information and uh, needs help in a lot of cases from the subsidiaries. If we're talking about exposures, you need to get um, the exposure information a lot of times from from various ERP systems. You have to, in some cases, get forecasts from the local entities or the FP&A team. And when we're talking about setting up anticipated risk, the forecasted risk hedging, that's one of the, when a company is first starting, that's, you know, the first thing that you talk to them about, you know, they can look at historical information, at least at first, to kind of understand, well, what what's our risk and what's it been? But then when you start thinking about how are we going to address this on an ongoing basis, well, we need FP&A to start sending us, you know, a forecast at these transactional levels. And what you find is FP&A will say, well, you know, we're, we kind of only forecast at the functional currency level or so they don't look underneath the surface to what at a transactional side, you know, what's really driving um, some of the risk uh, within that entity. So that's a change that you have to, to work through the organization is, okay, we need to start getting this information. We need to start getting visibility to all this information. Uh, and then, yeah, at a higher level too, then uh, you do have these situations where you have those different viewpoints and, and then again, it kind of has to go a little circular because if you start talking about hedge accounting and certain things like that, while well, hedge accounting might restrict uh, certain ways you want to do things. So you, if you're a U.S. dollar company with all your euro, euro revenue and a euro entity, and you're viewing that euro revenue as a risk. Well, as you can't get hedge accounting by hedging euro revenue in that particular case because it's all on a euro entity. So we don't have to go that far in the details on that, but it's just an example of, well, now I'm adding in this extra element of I have these rules for hedge accounting, and that might have to now circle back to kind of say, okay, this is what we can and can't do to qualify for hedge accounting. And, you know, what do we want to do as an organization? Do we want to view this risk more at the local entity level? Do we want to try to find some workarounds here to um, to hedge things at this U.S. dollar viewpoint? Um, and it requires a lot of conversations. And if you don't have those conversations, you know, at the beginning and set things up properly, um, that's where you kind of end up running into companies that have these hedge programs that don't always make a lot of sense. Both, like Treasury feels like they're on an island. They're they're doing hedging because they think they're doing the right thing, but no one else in the organization is really appreciating what they're doing because and they don't understand what they're doing. Um, so getting everyone on that same page early uh, on all these concepts that I'm sure are sounding very confusing right now. 
But uh, getting everyone on the same page and mapping it all out is really what you got to do when you're set, setting these things up. Can you explain that a little bit? Every time you've said risk in this episode, right, I've assumed it's the risk of the FX going the way you don't want it to. So if you're a US-based company, you're getting and you're getting payments from euros, uh, you get l- less dollars than you anticipated to get, right? I, I thought that was the risk. So that's why I'm like, well, what? how is there no clarity between stakeholders on that? Like, surely everyone everyone gets, we need to report in US, we're getting sales in, in euros, we want to make sure we get at least as many dollars as we anticipated. If it goes up from there, then great, but we want to protect our bottom side, and if you're hedging, typically you're going to cap your upside as well. Um, why is it not as simple as that? Yeah, it would be nice if it was. Um, but it, it it goes to that the functional currency and the kind of the entities and the layers. So if you if you only had a US dollar op- operation or a US operation that was selling things overseas or buying things from overseas and in that very simple context, then absolutely everyone would be on the same page. Uh, it'd be very clear cut. Hey, all of these transactions that are U.S. dollars, let's let's lock them into U.S. dollars and and kind of get rid of this risk. Um, it's really just you know that complexity of a multinational organization having different functional currency entities who also then have potentially uh, U.S. dollar transactions themselves, and then they have other foreign transactions as well. And depending on you know. If you have, I'll say that um, a lot of tech companies, they have the luxury, I think, of you know just being newer in general than kind of old school manufacturing legacy companies. And what a lot of them have done is they've set themselves up as U.S. dollar functional companies everywhere around the world. So if they have an entity in uh, Mexico... For local books, you know, and maybe for local taxes, they have to keep a Mexican peso set of books. But for U.S. GAAP, they treat themselves as a U.S. dollar functional entity. And what that does is it allows them to treat Mexican peso revenue as, you know, their risk, both at an entity level and at a corporate level. So in that case, your view of the risk and the way you're handling the accounting, it's all lining up. Those companies have the luxury then of being able to get hedge accounting really easily. They can directly hedge the Mexican peso revenue. Everything works out smoothly, as you said. But unfortunately, what's happened you know, with a lot of other companies is they kind of grew up and they set themselves up as, okay, we're in Mexico. It's a Mexican peso functional company and you know all over the world they set themselves up like that and now they're saying well hey you know what we view that all that mexican peso revenue as a risk and there's some hedge accounting rules that will say well it's mexican peso risk and a mexican peso entity and you can't actually hedge you can hedge that economically if you wanted to but you can't qualify for hedge accounting and so then you have a mismatch between the accounting and what you want to do economically. 
And, you know, so then the company, there are some workarounds to that, that are probably a little more advanced, but it gets complicated and it gets confusing. And, um, and some companies though will say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, we're We truly are a global company that has global operations in all these countries. And, and we're going to view those as kind of separate, distinct operations. So Mexi in Mexico, we're going to hedge everything to Mexican peso. And we're going to treat that as a Mexican peso business. We're going to treat our Euro entities as a Euro business. And then everything kind of rolls up. We have translation risk, but we'll explain that you know, in our earnings releases, when our in our uh, 10Q, 10K, we'll explain that as a translation risk. We'll we'll do something called constant currency reporting. We'll kind of explain it, and we don't think folks care about that. But but at least we're addressing kind of our individual business risk. So you do have companies do that. But when you're foreign functional and you're U.S. dollar company. If you want to have that ultimate viewpoint of U.S. anything non-U.S. dollar is a risk, uh, that's where you kind of bump into just challenges and, and you need workarounds. Um, so it can be simple, but unfortunately for a lot of global companies, it's it's just complicated with that whole landscape. So Jeff, there are many interesting topics that we'd like to touch upon here, but and that might ring a bell, but. One of our favorite exercise to Hussamana is to chase down acronyms and to break them down. You mentioned quite a few times in this episode, US GAAP. Can you quickly explain what that is and how is it relevant to FX? And when I come to it afterwards, but FX hedging and FX hedging accounting. Sure. Yeah. So, so US GAAP is an accounting, you know, guidance on the fly of you know, I'm actually not a CPA, but I got I'm, I'm a treasury practitioner who got heavily into hedge accounting. So U.S. GAAP is the accounting guidance that most U.S. companies, uh, headquartered companies, are following. It's um, you know it's it's organized by FASB uh, in the U.S. and it's it's what you have to follow. And the important thing there is that when we're talking about FX, is they have a, a section of their accounting guidance called ASC 830. And you can look this up on FASB's website. You can actually get uh, free online access to the uh, guidance. And if you look up ASC 830, that's the accounting framework uh, that companies need to follow for booking foreign transactions. So it'll kind of outline the high level. And it, it is a framework. So you do have companies that do things slightly differently as far as what kind of rates they're using to book transactions, things like that. But it's all within this general framework of ASC 830. And that covers how you, uh, we talked about remeasurement, how companies need to remeasure their books and, and certain things like that on the transaction basis. ASC 815 is the accounting guidance that covers hedge accounting. And that's just a whole other animal of, you know, when you're hedging these risks and you have derivatives, you have to put them on the books at fair value. And then depending on the risk you're hedging, you might want to designate it for special hedge accounting treatment. And so this is all outlined in excruciating detail on ASC 830. 
Um, so U.S. Gap is covering all of that for for those companies that are being audited and following U.S. Gap, and then for uh, a lot of international companies now, they'll be following IFRS. And for that, they have uh, IFRS nine is their hedge accounting, and at a very high level, the U.S. Gap hedge accounting and IFRS nine in terms of you know your typical standard FX hedging are very similar. Uh, but there are there are some nuanced uh, differences there as well. So, but yeah, when we talked about understanding your company's framework, um, you know that's that's another high level point that kind of skipped over is yeah yeah you, you want to know what what uh, accounting framework that you're following as a company. 